Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to St. John's. We are delighted you all are here. We are delighted to welcome into our midst today uh, the Reverend Marcus Kaiser. Uh, Marcus is the rector of Holy Comforter in Sumter, and uh, I think it would be safe to say that uh, Holy Comforter Sumter is probably uh, the other church in our diocese, if there's one, that is most like St. John's. Very similar in size, very similar in history, uh, very similar. They have been sort of sister churches uh, about the same age, uh, but a lot of their history and our history are very similar. Uh, During, uh, from 1918 to 1946, Uh, We had Parson Pointer, who was here for almost 30 years, and uh, his very best friend was the rector of Holy Comforter Sumter, Mr. Walker, and he was there for, godly, 35 years, I think, or 36. Yeah, he was there. He was there for four or five years, even longer than Parson Pointer was here. So we have a long history of friendship uh, with with this church, and Marcus and I are friends. Uh, our predecessors, John Barr and Pete Cooper, were fast friends as well. So we are delighted to have Marcus here as our speaker. And uh, come on over, Marcus. I'm gonna say a prayer for you before you begin. Uh, dear Lord, we do give you thanks that you call us into relationships with one another through the power of your Holy Spirit and in your church. We ask now that you would pour out the abundance of your wisdom, your blessing, and your enthusiasm on your servant Marcus as he teaches us. Pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have in store for us. Uh, During this season of Advent, give us expectant hearts about what you have in store as we celebrate, once again, uh, the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. So Ken says he likes me, but I'm not so sure. This is the second year in a row you've given me a topic that uh, makes me think people's eyes will, you know, do the shark eye thing. Last year was liturgy, which at least I know a little bit about. So, so I've subtitled this one, the other uh, meaning of Advent, but uh, an eschatological discourse. There's an S on there. Eschatological discourse on stuff I barely understand. And that's as much, but but at least this, I'm adamant in the fact that I don't understand it, and we'll get to that. So you may have covered some of this with your other speakers, but um, real quickly, what is Advent from Latin uh, to come, uh, ad venire, to come, and adventus, ar- arrival. That's where we um, get the name Advent, and it's specifically we're talking about the arrival of the Christ. So, uh, what arrival of the Christ is the fundamental question. What is the arrival of the Christ? So, let's talk about the history of how this liturgical, um, see, I'm going to turn it into the liturgy anyways, Ken, how, how we get to this liturgical practice of Advent. So, around 200 AD, um, the church is still mostly underground at this point. It's in people's houses. Um, it's illegal in the Roman Empire. But you have, especially in the Greek-speaking part of the church, the eastern part of the church, a major emphasis on Epiphany. And there's a Feast of Epiphany, which becomes sort of the second great feast of the church, first being Easter, the second Epiphany. But within Epiphany is included the Nativity of Jesus, the, the Christmas, we call it today. The Nativity of Jesus, but also the Baptism of Jesus and the Magi, 
So at 381 is really the first mention we get of Christmas as a separate thing because Epiphany sort of says, that's a lot to put on a day. Just, you know, those three big things to put on one day. So let's stretch it out a little bit and, and make that 12 days. And let's back it up from the Feast of Epiphany, January 6th, which brings us to December 25th. And we'll start it with the Christmas, with the Nativity. And so 381 introduces that, really. It comes into use, kind of falls out of use, comes back into use. But Christmas really isn't a major thing at all. Epiphany is the focus. And you get a season of preparation leading up to Epiphany, not to Christmas. And um, you have what's called the Lent of St. Martin, sometimes in sort of really esoteric Catholic circles today, you'll hear it talked about that way. The Lent of St. Martin's beginning on November 11th, the Feast of um, St. Martin of Tours. You have a 40-day of preparation leading into the, the 12 days leading to Epiphany. That's sort of how that all gets going. But it really just becomes, a, it's, a local, um, it's a local custom in the Diocese of Tours. That's about it. Until you get all the way down the road to the Middle Ages. So in the early Middle Ages, still Christmas isn't a big deal. But all the way until the Middle Ages, before Christmas really takes on a, a life of its own, um, it's, it's Charlemagne was a big fan of Christmas as sort of a party day. Um, and there, were, um, there was much revelry and, and merriment in the kingdom on Christmas, but not so much as a religious observation, just as a party. Then you get to 1843. Imagine that. See, part of the problem is we have assumptions coming into Christmas, don't we? We all just assume Christmas is what it was as it's been for us our whole lives. But 1843, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is the first time you ever hear somebody talk about the spirit of Christmas, the, the idea that Christmas is this sort of joyful family, the whole world sings in harmony, I'd like to buy the world a Coke, None of that exists until Charles Dickens comes along. And shortly after Charles Dickens is Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Queen Victoria had this great new invention, innovation that, that kind of came over from Germany. Remember, Albert is a German um, of a Christmas tree, um, some sort of evergreen tree with lights on it. And she wrote um, poetically about how much she loved it. And everybody in England wanted to be like Queen Victoria um, and so they started putting up Christmas trees, um, and then Christmas becomes a big deal, kind of like nobody had ever really worn a white wedding dress until Victoria. Um, she was a trendsetter. She was the Beyonce of her day. Whatever she did is what people wanted to do. And then we get to the 1940s. I don't see anybody here who would be old enough to remember, but before the 1940s, Stockings might have had an orange in them. You, you might have had um, a, a really simple Christmas compared to what we have today. And in the 40s and 50s, following that post-war boom, and if anybody's ever seen Mad Men, um, you know that the advertising industry takes over, and they do the work of Queen Victoria. They set the trends for the, for the, for the country and for our culture, which then bleeds over into every other country. That's where we get the Christmas as we know it today. It just didn't exist like this even a century ago. So Advent 
then we have to sort of back off and say, if that's true about Christmas, what's Advent about? What's the purpose? If if because for my life, Advent was sort of the stuff I'm supposed to feel bad and endure a little bit of time so that I can celebrate baby Jesus. That's what Advent was for most of my life. So um, bear with me. This is a, a picture of Legolas shooting two arrows with one bow. And that has been true of Advent from its inception. Shooting two arrows with one bow, really two targets with, with one arrow was probably a better analogy, but two different Advents, two different foci, fo- focuses for Advent. So let me, let me bring you back all the way to one, uh, 160 A.D., before Advent itself as a season was a thing. Next, Justin Martyr, great apologist for the church, uh, defended the church against um, the Roman emperor who was, um, had outlawed it. And he said, the two Advents of Christ have been announced. Two Advents of Christ have been announced. In the first one, he has set forth as suffering and glorious, dishonored and crucified. However, in the other Advent, he will come from heaven with glory. So two advents of Christ. The first one, and by the way, notice it's not just talking about Christmas. Suffering, inglorious, dishonored and crucified. That's the first coming of Jesus. The second, he will come from heaven with glory. All prophets, um, this is Irenaeus in 180 AD, one of the great um, first major thinker theologians in the church. All prophets announced his two advents. In the second one, he will come on the clouds, bringing on the day which burns as a furnace. So we are so consumed with Christmas as we understand it in our culture. It's the second advent we so often miss. And for most of church history has been the major focus of advent. Why would we need to spend time preparing for something that has already happened, right? If the birth of Christ is the major focus of Advent, what's the purpose of preparing? That's not what we're preparing for. There's also the modern sort of take on this, the three Advents of Christ. This was really popular, I know, in the 70s, 80s. So the first Advent is at his birth, like we said. The second one is in our hearts daily, the collect for, that we just prayed, which is for next Sunday, um, talks about the advent of Christ in our hearts and then in glory at the end of time. All right, so what are we talking about? The second advent. Matthew 25, 31, and 32, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with them, with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, we're going to come back to 1 Thessalonians in a second. But Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of, the, of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This does not sound like the sweet baby in a manger. There's something very, very different happening here. Revelation 1.7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. 
and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is different. This season is different than how we typically think of it. I want to, this, I just love it. This is, uh, this is called the last judgment day. It's called the Bosch triptych. If, if you ever want to look it up, you don't have to write that down. But the Bosch triptych, this is from the 15th century. It's a, it's a, um, one of the few famous paintings of the last judgment. Who knew? Not a, wonder why, just not a big subject for art and literature. Um, the Last Judgment is not a very happy idea for us to think about, which is maybe why it slipped into the periphery of Advent. But what I love about this, it's three panels. On the rightmost panel, you have hell, with um, Satan down there sort of in the center, um, and, and that's, that's hell. On the far left, you have um, a, a, a con- congruence, actually, a, com- a compilation of both Eden and the New Eden. So this is heaven. In the middle is the judgment day. So you see Jesus, and up there he's with Mary, St. John, and the apostles. Um, and, and he's coming down, and this is judgment. So, so what? notice this. All of this, I'm going to get away from the microphone. But all of this is the judgment to hell. So notice how the, the colors of hell bleed into the center frame. And how much of Eden bleeds into the center frame. Just kind of the rooftop over there on the left. Like there's a couple of saved guys over there on the left, and the rest is all suffering. Um, so, so that's a pretty biblical picture of Judgment Day. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the second coming. And when Ken told me to talk about the second coming, I thought maybe I, there's something I did know. We were talking about the poem by Yeats, which is beautiful, um, but also depressing. So we're not going to talk about that. Um, also known as parousia. If you look this up in a, in a theological manual, which I've had cause to do in the last few days, you might have to look under that word, parousia, which is Greek for arrival or coming. It translates into the Latin for advent. But if you're looking up judgment day or the second coming, that's often what it's going to be under parousia. Um, come from Matthew 28 or 24, uh, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so it will be the coming of the Son of Man. That in Greek is parousia. The day of the Lord. This is maybe the most frequent um, thing we see in all of Scripture. It's all throughout the prophets. I've only given you a couple of examples here, but the, the day of the, sometimes it's called the terrible day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Um, Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. First um, Thessalonians 5, 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, which is fascinating how much has been based on Thessalonians when you see that in there as well. But it's also known as the last judgment. Matthew 10, 5, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is equated with a battle of Armageddon. Y'all have heard that. Um, how many times does the word Armageddon show up in the Bible? Anybody know? One. Just one. In the whole Bible. Um, it's amazing how much we talk about it when it showed, shows up one time. Right here, Revelation 16, 16. Um, and they assembled them at the place of, that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Um, maybe. It's, it's really hard to parse that out. Um, the other arrow analogy I like to use, when I was a kid, we had a PE teacher 
in elementary school named Mr. Spoon. And I'm just old enough to remember, um, this will shock you guys, but we had archery in elementary school. Um, and we had to make the arm guards out of cardboard. Anybody else remember doing that? And, um, and uh, we had archery, and Mr. Spoon was a, a really, really excellent archer. Um, in fact, he took several months off a year and went up to Alaska, and he was famous and in the newspapers for having killed a bear with a knife. So Mr. Spoon was a man's man. And he would do the same trick for every class. He set up two targets, one behind the other, and he would take his compound bow and shoot an arrow through the first bullseye, and it would go with such velocity, it would shoot through the bullseye and into the second target and hit a bullseye. Um, that is exactly what every prophet in the Bible, including John the Revelator, is doing, is they're shooting through some event in view, in human view, um, they're talking about um, the Babylonian captivity. They're talking about the Assyrian conquest. They're talking about um, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. They're shooting through now and into eternity. So Revelation is really hard. The book of Revelation is really hard to base a lot on because of all of that imagery. It's not mean, it doesn't mean it's not true. It means trying to parse it out as science is hard. Um, which leads me to the rapture. All right, Kenny, I'm saying this at your church, and I expect one day you're going to come say it at my church. Um, we get asked from time to time, why don't we preach about the rapture? Well, it's based on one passage, really, one, one verse. First uh, Thessalonians 4, 7, 10, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So just like Advent, I, I always want us to examine our assumptions. Um, there's a great story. Um, there's two fish swimming along, two, two teenage fish. They're just having a good old time. And an old guy, um, his name was Ken, uh, old fish, comes swimming along. And uh, he's a cheery, chipper, chipper old fish. And he swims along and says, hey, boys, um, water's nice today, isn't it? And he swims off. And the one young fish looks to the other one and says, uh, what's water? Okay, so it's not a funny story. But if you think about it, they're swimming in water they don't know exists. And we swim in water we don't know exists. We have assumptions that we bring to the table, just like Christmas has always been what it is today. Just like if you are a Bible-believing Christian, then why don't you preach on the rapture? It's, I mean, there's a whole book series about it. Why don't you preach on it? And listen, I have been screamed at by parishioners over this issue. I've had parishioners leave my church because I must be such a Bible-disbelieving liberal that I won't preach on the rapture. My predecessor was much more wise than I, much more gentle, and he would just say, yeah, I'll get around to that. Never did. So I keep hearing about this rapture thing. What is it? So let's get nerdy. You ready? Let's get really nerdy. The main source, like we just looked at, is 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Um, the word caught up is um, arpazo, harpazo in Greek, um, which means there you have exactly the definition to seize, to catch away, to pluck, pull up. That's going to be important in a minute. I'm going to move fast because that's boring. To meet the Lord in the air. So I want you, you're going to learn a Greek word today, okay? You ready for this? The Greek word for air is air. 
and it means heir. Paul could have used another word, and in fact, we know he would have used another word if he meant it, because if you go on, there's a word, oranos, heaven, that he uses in 2 Corinthians 12 too. I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up into, that caught up is harpazo, same, so he's got the same sentence construct here. So we're using the same language, same author, caught up into the third heaven, Uranos, not air. So when we're talking about caught up into a different realm of being, that's not air. Air is air. This is air. Heaven is different. There is a Greek word for heaven he would have used if he meant that. So that's the first thing that, go on, um, could, could that passage still be pointing towards the rapture? Sure, why not? But it's by no means the only reading. By no means. Um, a more reasonable, expected reading for the original audience of, um, of 1 Thessalonians is, again, we have to take ourselves out of our context and our assumptions and think about living in a world where telephones don't exist. Think about living in a world where television doesn't exist, where radio doesn't exist, um, where we don't have advanced, even the post system doesn't exist. It's a, it's a series of messengers by foot. Um, I was in the Holy Land in, in uh, when was that, there, September. In the distances, it's a small country, but the distances are massive if you're walking, and we did walk. Um, I walked about 100 miles in the couple weeks I was there. And the distances are massive if you're walking. So you catch word from somebody running ahead that the king, who you've never seen in your life, is coming to your town. This is a well-beloved king. This king you have a great uh, fondness for because he has done wonderful things for your community, but you've never seen him, you've never met him. What are you going to do? You're going to run out and meet him in the air. And then what are you going to do? Hey, king, come check it out. You're going to turn around and come back. So all this passage says we're going to run out, meet Jesus in the air. Maybe it means we're going to high-five him on the way by, and he's going to go down and we're going to go up. Maybe it means we're going to greet him as a king who's coming. So, next, what do we know? This passage, I think, says everything we need to know about the second coming of Jesus. Matthew 24, 36 to 42. But concerning that day and that hour, singular, that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as, were, as it, were in, it was in the days of Noah, so will it be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah embarked on the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So in other words, it will come like a thief in the night. There will be signs, but it will come like a thief in the night. Let me stop there and say, uh, people often say to me, I think we're living in the end times. Um, and, and I get it. I totally get it. And but But they'll usually say, you know, given the political environment or given what's happening in the Middle East or given the, you know, Russia or something. I, I believe we're living in the end times. And I think that's probably true. 
I'm just not sure those end times didn't begin in 70 AD or, or so. Um, and I'm pretty sure that people at the fall of Rome or during the bubonic plagues or um, during any of the great tragedies and during the, uh, the Holocaust in Germany, they were pretty sure they were living in the end of days. Um, and they were right. And you know what? It might be the end of days for you or for me. And so we better live like it's the end of days. But whether we can say, well, Jesus is coming again soon. I know it because I um, read the newspaper. Um, I'm just not sure I can go there with you because are things as bad today as they ever have been? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, I'll, get, I'll come back to that. That's another assumption we deal with. Um, so it will be uh, in the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know at what, um, on what day your Lord is coming. Wait a minute. Next slide. It's a gotcha. Two men are in the field, one taken, one left. I mean, it's the book, right? Left behind. Um, there's uh, two women grinding at the, the stone, and one's taken. Um, and so that must prove the rapture. This is the other passage. Next. Maybe. I don't know, but probably not, because for 1,850 years of church history, nobody read it that way. For 1,850 years of church history, nobody read it that way. It could be, but it also could be a vivid example of ordinary life and the reality that at the end, you're either a sheep or a goat. At the end, there's only two states of being, saved and unsaved heaven or hell. So Jesus may also have just been giving us examples from ordinary life of, um, of those two, one's heaven, one's hell. So that's the way everybody read this pretty much for most of church history. Next, 1,850 years? Really? Nobody talked about the rapture for 1,850 years. Really? Almost. So the first mention you really get of the rapture from any source is uh, Puritans, um, Cotton and Mathers, or no, excuse me, Increase in Cotton Mathers. If you've heard those names, if that rings a little bell from, from social studies in high school, that's because they were the dudes who did the Salem witch trials. Um, so that was the first sort of source. Next. The next one was a Plymouth uh, Brethren leader and to our chagrin, uh, Anglican priest, John Nelson Darby, um, who really popularized this notion of a rapture, of a, of a second event, of, or actually a first event, that the second coming of Jesus is going to come in stages. There's, there's, first, he's going to come for the church, and then he's going to either come and establish a reign, or then he's going to come and do judgment. Like, those are separate events. What does Jesus say? The day, the hour. The Bible is consistent, the terrible day of the Lord. Singular. So um, even Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, who is, in my opinion, top five greatest preachers in the history of the world, um, but is maybe the reason the Baptist movement took off from the ground. Um, he, he called Darby uh, a charlatan. And it's amazing to look at in the last century, the Southern Baptist Church, 
um, most Pentecostal churches, even though they agree on nothing, they agree there's a rapture. Where do they get that from? It's not history, and it's not the plain reading of Scripture. Next. It's really a 20th century book called the Schofield Reference Bible, um, published around 1909-ish. Um, not until that point is anybody really even interested in this. Until that point, it is simply Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus comes again, he's going to judge the living and the dead. Why? Because that's what we have been saying for the last 1,900 years of church history. So, um, next, here are some different views on how that all happens. And what I want you to notice is how many little points there are after the cross. So, um, the first one has two points, two second comings. Jesus comes, takes away the church, there's a, there's a, a millennium between then and the last judgment. Um, the second one is Jesus comes, takes church, there's a long tribulation, then he comes back again with the church, and then there's a thousand-year rule, and then the final judgment. Post-millennialism is sort of the literal reading of the millennium, but doesn't require Jesus to come and take the church out of the world. And then amillennialism, or amillennialism, um, which today is uh, plainly spoken of as heresy even though it's what most Christians in the world today believe, it's what most theologians in the world today teach, and it's the only thing that was believed or taught for 1,900 years. Um, but you are a heretic if you don't buy one of these other views. Could one of those other views be true? Sure. I have no earthly clue. I don't know. Um, we stand in the center of history, and because we stand in the center of history, things get pretty cloudy when you look out toward the edges. And I can explain the edges a lot less than I can explain the eyewitness accounts of Jesus or what Christ has done in my life. I have a um, dear, dear friend. Well, he's going on to heaven now. He missed the rapture. Um, but a parishioner at Holy Comforter, um, I buried him. I preached at his funeral. Um, one of the most faithful, wonderful men I ever knew. And uh, he used to scream and yell at me about this because he was mentored by a Baptist preacher who um, taught him that the only possible view of the end times, which is called eschatology, is this number two, really, the, the second possibility there. Um, and he used to scream and yell at me. And finally, one of the last conversations I ha ever had with him, I said, John, stop. Let me ask you something. If the rapture happens tomorrow, how do I get in? Like, if you're right and I'm wrong, how do I get raptured? If, if the pilot of half the planes in the world and half the cars in the world is going to get taken away, poof, gone tomorrow, and the other half of the world is going to get left behind and the books are right, how do I get, how do I get poofed? And his answer was, well, you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Great. I'm in. I'm getting raptured if there's a rapture then. Belief in the rapture isn't a requisite belief for the rapture, is it? So 
who cares? I told him, if it happens, I will high-five you on the way up and say, you were right and I was wrong. But here's what the Anglican formularies say. The, um, this is uh, Articles of, of Religion, 39 Articles, Article number 4. Uh, Christ did truly rise again from the dead, took again his body um, with flesh and bones, and all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature, wherewith he ascended into heaven. Okay, We're all good so far. And there sitteth until he returned to judge men at the last day. Why would the 39 articles not leave any room for anything but the last day? Because nobody in the late 16th century when this is being written has thought about anything other than the last day. That's what Advent is asking you to consider. When is it going to happen? I don't know. Next. There's some predictions. Um, Lots of predictions throughout history. They've all been wrong. Um, it didn't happen yet. Um, one that really shocks me is John Wesley. I didn't know that. I learned that yesterday. John Wesley predicted the end of the world. Um, so I made a prediction. Um, that's my 50th birthday. <laughs> 50 is the year of Jubilee in the Bible. I'm claiming it. Um, next. <laughs> well, I'll still have a 13-year-old at that point in my life. So, um, What do I really need to know? This is where we're going to almost end. What do I really need to know? Well, the church has taught us what we really need to know. Next. Nicene Creed, this is the ACNA version. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Next. The Apostles' Creed, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The ancient formularies of the church teach us what we need to know because they come directly from, next, Scripture. When Christ, who is our life, shall be manifested or appear, then shall you also appear with him, be manifested with him in glory. That is what we need to know. That is the reason for Advent. Next, Christ is coming again. This is the point of Advent, um, and we are to remember his first coming. Remember that he did not leave us orphans. He came. He came in humility. He came to take on our flesh, because as the uh, Cappadocian fathers said, what has not been assumed cannot be redeemed. So um, another way of saying that is what Jesus has taken on, he makes whole. What Jesus has taken on, he heals. And he took on our flesh, our humanity, so that our humanity might be made whole. That's what the first coming was about. The second coming is about making the rest of creation whole. About undoing the fall. He is coming again, and he will come to judge. There's an old uh, phrase that we in the church... Um, Maybe only those of us of a certain age are used to hearing it without disliking it as a gut reaction. The fear of God. We talk about that phrase now as though it's a bad phrase. Well, the Bible tells us he's the only one we should fear. Fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul. So he is coming again 
to judge. He's coming again to reign. Um, we live in a not, not yet and already kingdom. He has come, his kingdom has begun, but it is not complete yet. So he is coming to reign completely as king. And Jesus loves you. And when he comes to judge, if you are to be judged by your deeds, the nicest person in this room will fail. If you are to be judged by your deeds, the nicest person in this room is going to hell. This is the truth of Scripture. But we have a special plea bargain we can enter. We can go before the judge and say, Judge, I am innocent by your deeds. I am innocent by your blood. And then that blood will cover everything we've ever done, everything we've ever thought, everything we've ever said. Those things are covered in the blood of Jesus. So he's coming to judge, but he's also giving us a get-out-of-jail-free card. So long as we say we are pleading innocent by your blood. Everything after that, how it happens, when it happens, everything is pure fluff. And it is pure speculation. I don't understand the anger people have over how it's going to happen. What we know in the end is God wins. I read the book. That's how it ends. This is the spoiler. God wins, and everything after that is dissecting the bird to find the song. Do you understand what I mean by that? I want to understand the song, so I'm going to kill and dissect the bird. God wins. So this Advent, brothers and sisters, I invite you to think not only we are so accustomed to thinking of Jesus as the safe, soft, sweet baby in a manger, no crying he makes, bubkis. He was a flesh and blood baby who cried and wanted his mother to comfort him and he wanted to be fed and he needed his nappy changed. He was a flesh and blood baby but we think of him as that baby so easily because he is safe that way. I've never had my life threatened by a baby, perhaps only my sanity. Um, but I've never had my life threatened by a baby. Advent, um, and the reason why every rector, most rectors, every rector worth his salt in the church insists on telling you when you ask him, why can't we sing Christmas carols during Advent? insists on telling you because it's not Christmas. And then we, have you ever had that conversation, I wonder? Yeah. Um, in fact, I just became the interim rector of a second church, and when I got there for the first Sunday of Advent, um, it was joy to the world, uh, silent night, away in a manger, and uh, the musician and I had um, a discussion afterwards about the Advent section of the hymnal. Because this isn't about the safe baby. This is about the coming king who is coming to judge you. And if you are found wanting to sentence you to hell for eternity, and we should fear him because the last day is coming. I don't know when and I don't know how, but it's coming. 
but we should also thank him and love him because he gives us a get-out-of-jail-free card simply by pleading his blood, and that's it. So, um, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Happy Advent, um, and thank God that he is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. Amen.